Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 27th, 2023. We're at the time of the year where time takes on at least symbolic significance. We've got four or five days left of the year, and it seems as if we are all turning our minds to the idea of time. Of course, many people have written and sung about time. My favorite um, song, at least, about time is by David Bowie from uh, Aladdin Sane. Uh, his great song, uh, Time, he's waiting in the wings. He speaks of senseless things. His script is you and me, boy. Time, he flexes like a whore, falls wanking to the floor. His trick is you and me, boy. We're all, of course, the trick of time. Uh, and when we think of time, we don't often think of economics. But my guest today, Charles Croson, who is a financial trader, has a new book out, an interesting new take on time called Jam Tomorrow, Why Time Really Matters in Economics. So rather than David Bowie, he's writing about time in the context of economic theory, and he's joining us from North Norfolk. Uh, Charles, why, why do we think about time differently at the end of the year? Why is, does it take on particular significance, given that uh, a day in late December is no different from a, a day in the middle of August or April or, or November. Morning, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. Um, I think it's one of those things where generally in life there's a threshold um, below which we, we ignore things or don't think about things. Um, and it's often in periods of uh, crisis or annual events, birthdays, events like Christmas where we saw particularly the you know the new year and the and the the idea of new year eve new year's eve where everybody gets together for parties and this kind of things where we often look backwards or we think forward you know back to the past forward to the future and it's simply something we don't do all the time you know if it's the middle of October it's maybe not such a big deal um if you're American it's the middle of uh, November you're starting to think about Thanksgiving but most people when it comes to the end of the year are thinking about what they've achieved in the past um what they're looking forward to in the future and i think it's one of those things you know certainly particularly when i was thinking about the role of time in economics you know the subject of my book it's one of those things that often seems to be sort of lurking there in the background um but only comes to the fore in periods of extreme crisis and often it's the case that we don't want to think about it too much or if there's a crisis and we manage to get through it that we don't have to sort of dwell on the past if it's uh a particularly painful event you know i'm thinking about ones in you know in recent history like the the global financial crisis back in 2007 2008 was a horror for most people around the world and it was one of those situations where given there was the the risk of a you know sort of global banking collapse where cash machines might end up not giving out money and all this kind of stuff you know a real fundamental crisis where the the plumbing of the world financial system and therefore the you know the global economy as a whole could grind to a complete halt but when it was solved you know and it was solved by you know mass intervention by central banks and you know governments bailing out banks and all this kind of stuff but it's one of those things we tend to try and pass on as quickly as possible forget about it and uh, it's probably you know an, ele an element of human nature to to focus on the day-to-day -day and the positive rather than 
potentially sort of learning the uh, the lessons of these uh, these crisis events where our sort of collective time horizon if you would rather than being something that extends off into the future where we can think about you know what we're going to do now what our children are going to do what we like to do in retirement everything seems to sort of focus in in a crisis on the next day you know often it's the case that when people lose their jobs they um end up worrying not so much about how they're ret going to retire but how they're going to make the mortgage payment at the end of the month and it's this idea of a, a time horizon which is always sort of there in the background a lot of the time we don't notice it because i think there's a there's a threshold to human consciousness below which a lot of stuff sort of passes by on a day-to-day -day level you know we're sort of concerned with the everyday of life and obviously we're not necessarily thinking broadly about you know our future or you know the nature of the world and all this kind of stuff and it's only in these times of crisis when suddenly everything seems to impinge upon us and it all sort of weighs in yeah I, I wonder Ty, um charles whether there's something inevitably metaphysical about time or how we think about it so we think about it we tend to think about it at the end of a year and the beginning of the new year we think about it in terms of what we haven't achieved and what we want to achieve um, in the following year. So when we think of time, it's, we often think of not what we've done, but what we haven't done and what we might not have time to do. And of course, it always touches on the fact that we're not here forever. And if we were, there wouldn't be such a thing as time. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's really a metaphysical thing or a physical thing is the real question. Um, it's often the case that the way we think of time from our personal point of view or particularly the way we talk about it, and I think it's the way we talk about it, which is incredibly important, as though there's this big now that we all share, and therefore there's our own perspective, and then there's the perspective of our family, society, the country in which we live, and all this kind of stuff. That when one starts to get into the, the metaphysics of whose time you're really talking about, you know, whether it's, I don't know, political time, which sort of moves from election to election, whether it's family time, which moves from events such as, you know, birth, death and marriage through, you know, the events in the lives of our children growing up, university, this kind of stuff. Um, or whether it's our personal time in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of our career, what particularly when we're younger, the hopes we have for the future. Sometimes as you get to middle age where you realise that you're not kind of necessarily going to be the person you thought you were going to be and how you contend with that on a, a sort of personal psychological level. That's often, crushing the way you put that. Uh, well, Charles. We're not who we wanted ourselves to be in middle age. We suddenly realize that I, I'm not sure many of us do. And and, and, well, and if we do, it's particularly painful and traumatic. Well, it, it can be, but it, I don't think it has to be. Um, I think often when we're, you know, that one of the things I always sort of think when people are, you know, sort of children are growing up, you know, become students and going through school and university, um, that there's always this period where the choices you have in life seem to get narrowed down. And that's just the way life in the developed world in the early 21st century works. You know, when you have very young children, they often try a lot of different hobbies, pastimes, sports, all this kind of stuff. And then they have to start specializing. When you go to senior school, you know, the number of subjects you get gradually reduces down. And when in the UK, at least when you do a degree, you do one subject. When in the US, you, you know, you major and have a series of minors. And all these times you're beginning to narrow your cho life choices down and you begin to create a path for yourself. Now, it's not necessarily a path which, you know, is, is designated from the age of 22 or 23, whenever you leave university. But it certainly comes becomes narrower. And I think as time goes by, particularly 
as one gets older and one's responsibilities, I think just from a practical point of view, family responsibilities, the idea of, you know, chopping and changing one's career or one's outlook on life and, you know, sort of changing, having one of these sort of radical reorientations, it's not that it's impossible, but the odds become, I think, increasingly stacked against you simply because the amount of change involved is very disrupting, not just for you, but for the, for the people around you. We are speaking with Charles Croson, a Norfolk-based uh, economist, financial trader, the author of an intriguing new book, Jam Tomorrow, Why Time Really Matters in Economics, reminding everyone of the centrality of time in economics. Uh, the science of economics, if that's the right way to describe it, or at least the study of economics, began with, again, quote-unquote, Charles, uh, moral philosophers like Adam Smith. Um, should the study of economics always contain that degree of morality or metaphysics that uh, it founding fathers like Adam Smith focused on? I think it should do. And I think to some extent, we've, if one looks at the concepts of the world, which people like David Hume or Adam Smith had in the middle of the 18th century, and their view of what economics was, that they tended to have a a view of society where stability was the main goal. And particularly because up until then, economic growth had been very, very slow, sort of glacial progression from the Romans up to you know the middle of the 18th century, and then suddenly it exploded just after people like Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in you know, the latter half of the 18th century, that they had this idea of the economy and society as a cycle where balance and stability was the goal. And it's quite interesting that in the 19th century, particularly towards the end of it, where the full effects of uh, free trade on the one hand, but also industrialization, you know, the first industrial revolution in England and the, the second one in Germany, which focused more on the chemical and electrical industries, that growth and progress became more of a focus. And increasingly, I think in the 20th century, particularly as natural growth declined and we changed our monetary system to be one which allowed a lot more debt to be involved in how the economy was functioned that the the focus on the economy is providing for social stability something which was very familiar in the 18th century and you know very much the the uh, the idea if you look at people like adam smith and his theory of moral sentiments which is always taken as the other book that goes alongside his wealth of nations that to some extent we have lost sight of that and that's not necessarily a critique of individuals who are in charge now, whether it's, you know, politicians in charge of the Treasury or central bankers or even people working in the financial industry. I think there's this sort of difficult balance one has to strike between the, the role of systems and processes, which are quite passive on the one hand, but also the idea of individuals being involved either at a very low level of decision making or at a sort of more broader political and economic level. And finding that sort of balance where the passive and the active sort of meet in the middle, that's a huge question when it comes to the idea of where our moral obligations lie in terms of how the economy should function and particularly how it should serve society, not just in terms of equality, particularly the idea of income equality on the one hand, but also increasingly, you know, and it's been a, a, a theme which has been front of mind for a, for a lot of, you know, for much of the last 10 years, the idea of ecological damage caused by economic progress and that's a very difficult question for even for capitalism to get around particularly because the idea of the profit motive which is the you know the driving force behind capitalism 
isn't one which necessarily takes into account all of the byproducts, you know, both wanted and unwanted of the industrial capitalist system. And this is only something after, you know, 300 years on from the Industrial Revolution that we're really starting starting to have to come to terms yeah. with. Charles, do we need to, I mean, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, where the future is always quantified in a way. Uh, companies like OpenAI are valued in the 10, sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars, even if they don't have much revenue, because people imagine in the future they're going to be worth more. Ecologists are rem remind us that we need to reverse that and think of the future in terms of the damage of our current economic system to the environment of the future. Is, is when it comes to time, is it the future that is most lacking in the way in which we try to quantify economics, progress or lack of progress? Or is it the past as well? I think it's much, it's much easier to understand and quantify the past simply because we have the empirical record of prices, you know, whether that's stock prices, commodity prices, or interest rates. Um, therefore, the past is much easier to quantify. One of the problems I think that economics has, particularly with respect to issues such as the, you know, the climate issue, is trying to create the correct models for how the future will pan out. It's very difficult. It's, you know, it verges on the edge of astrology a lot of the time in terms of predicting what's going to happen. You, you see, if you look at what Wall Street says is going to happen to the stock market or bond yields or what have you on any given year, you might as well be throwing darts <laughs> with a blindfold on. Um, the quantification of the future is therefore very difficult. Um, I think the most interesting question, though, is the qualification. You know, you were talking, mentioned earlier about the idea of a, a moral content to uh, <coughs> economics. And there's this idea, you know, I guess, on the moral side of things are the idea of good and bad. And for example, if you look at borrowing, which has been a feature of settled societies from, you know, the the, the Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent 3000 BC up until now, that there's always been lending. You know, there's a certain school of people who think borrowing is necessarily bad or evil or immoral, but it's very much a feature of uh, the economic system and always has been, purely because settled society always creates a set of obligations to those around the people in that society. Some of those obligations are ones over time. And that's the or origin of the idea of credit, where if I lend you something today, I expect you to pay it back tomorrow. And that's basically the idea behind, you know, the, the system of credit. And you don't even need right. to David Graeber, of course, has written a very powerful, no exactly. longer around, very powerful history of debt, cultural and economic sense. Well, exactly. And I think if one assumes that debt is a necessary function of an economy um one can start to ask questions about the quality of the debt that we have and i think that's when one's looking forward to the future rather than quantifying it which is quite difficult because you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen in numeric terms whether it's through prices or interest rates inflation gdp growth and that kind of stuff what one can do in the present is make a qualification you know a value judgment about the quality of the debt for example that we're issuing and I think it really falls into two categories. On the one hand, you have debt, money, which is then spent on consumption, you know, something for the now. And then on the other hand, you have money, which is invested through debt for investment projects, um, which is for the future. So you have on the one hand, you have consumption. On the other hand, you have investing, which you get essentially is this choice about time. It's about now or later. 
generally you find that when one is borrowing for consumption, it's bad in a moral sense and an ethical sense and an economic sense, partly because it creates inequalities in society between the debtor and the creditor, but also because it leads to a, a growth of debt and a buildup of debt relative to the size of the economy, which eventually slows down growth. Investing in the future, whether it's R&D, uh, whether it's investing in new factories, capital expenditure, or whether it's investing in one's own education, um, you know, which is a, a punt on oneself about how one, what is one, one is going to do in the future. Those always seem to be very good ways of borrowing money and very useful ways. And I think the focus needs to shift a little bit from this very quantitative mindset to one which is a little bit more qualitative. And this is where the idea of value comes in about how we make our decisions about choices about consumption on the one hand and choices about investing and saving for the future on the other. We are speaking with Charles Croson, the author of Jam Tomorrow, Why Time Really Matters in Economics, um, a very sober take on economics. And if you want a sober take on the world, you need to subscribe to Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics who bring us very high quality guests like Charles. Uh, I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties. And then we'll be back to talk more about why time really matters in economics and how we can make it matter more in 2024. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be very specific in about 33 and a half seconds. We'll be back with Charles Cross. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, politics, opinion, Substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with the UK-based uh, financial analyst, Charles Croson, the author of Jam Tomorrow, an interesting new book on time and economics. Charles, is one of the problems, we've done a number of shows on this, is one of the problems with the way we think about time, the nature of Wall Street and other stock markets around the world. Everything is short-termism. Everything is predicated on three or six-month cycles. Is, is that your analysis of how time is corrupting uh, economics, especially when it comes to long-term economic growth? Um, I, I couldn't say it better myself. I think from at several layers in society and throughout the economy, we suffer from a chronic short-termism, um, not just in the developed world. And it's not specifically, a, I think, an issue for uh, you know the West, as it were. But there is this great tendency um, to think in very short-term fashion. Um, part of it, I think, is driven by the nature of the system of government that we've sort of developed, but also the nature of the economy that we've developed in the last hundred years as well. That um, if you think, I mean, I tend to think of the 20th century as characterizing two quite important trends, both of which were mass and popular in nature. And on the one hand, we had the growth of democracy. Um, people, you know, eventually managed, everybody had managed to get the vote in the West, which wasn't the case, for, for example, before the First World War. And over the course of the 20th century, democracy developed into social democracy, you know, with welfare support entitlements, which there are those in favour that those think, who think it's gone too far. But um, generally, it's part of the uh, the furniture of the of the 21st century state. 
On the other hand, and I think this was very much a sort of a development from America, which has spread around the world and has been very much America's influence, particularly from the Second World War onwards, was the idea of consumer culture. And I guess the way you could talk about that in theoretical terms is saying that necessity and subsistence gave way to desire, you know, having things that you wanted rather than things you needed. And when you want something, you want it now. And one of the ways of getting it now is, for example, by you know putting on your credit card. You don't necessarily have to earn the money to uh, to 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 buy something with, or you can put it on pay as you go. And Amazon, of course, can deliver it sometimes even the same day. Well, exactly. Similarly, and with AI, perhaps we will get things before we even knew we wanted them. Which all of which are you know clear sort of social and economic trends, but ones which, if one's talking in terms of time horizons certainly lend themselves to the present and to consumption and particularly you know in the light of what we were just talking about about environmental threats and the idea potentially that you know the 21st century economy is over consuming resources that this short-termism and the way particularly the the global economy and particularly in the developed world functions that there's a very difficult choice to be made and, it, and it's a very it would be a very unpleasant and unpopular sort of choice to bring up politically about the idea of there being too much consumption because there's too much short-termism. Any transition away from that from an economic point of view would be extremely painful. You know, it might involve a, 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 a deep recession or even a depression of some sort because consumption fell, which would cause unemployment to rise. So I think rather than it necessarily being something we're necessarily in, in control of or in charge of, it's very much a sort of characteristic of you know, 21st century society and economy. And to change that around and to, to get our, our sort of thinking more long-term is a very difficult thing. And I think it's quite interesting over the last five or 10 years, obviously the idea of the green transition has been pushed very hard at a, a global level. You know, we've just finished COP28, the, the sort of annual get together of people trying to discuss the, uh, you know, the, 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 the plan for the future in terms of the energy transition. And often it seems to be the case, not only do you have uh, chronic short-termism in terms of, you know, the consumer society. But when politicians start talking about the transition away from fossil fuels um, into, you know, greener forms of energy such as wind and solar, that often it seems that their time horizons are far too short for that as well. Obviously, for political reasons, they want to say, well, you know, we need to trans transition to so, so many electric vehicles by 2030. We need to get rid of petrol and diesel cars by 2050 and all these kind of things. And the reality of economics and the sort of you know the physics of it and even the you know the sort of the more sort of granular level of how much particular resources we have such as co copper lithium rare earths and all these kind of things you know the actual mining side of it suggests that even in these plans for the future politicians tend to be optimistically short-termist in terms of how quickly we can transition an economy away from fossil fuels to alternative sources of energy particularly ones such as uh solar and wind which are less dense than the energy sources such as coal and oil that we're currently using and that's never happened in economic history before so it's it's kind of risky and it feels like quite a big experiment to be honest charles you're in the business of giving financial advice um as people think about next year and can't do much about 2023 many new year resolutions are built around money we should spend less save more are those sensible? What advice do you give your clients uh, and listeners about thinking about one's short and longer term financial future? I think the first thing to realize is that 
and this is what is the caveat at the bottom of every single piece of you know financial literature that you get at least in the uk is that the past is no guide to the future um and therefore this is always this element of the unexpected um i think one of the things to think about at the moment uh, and for the last couple of years but i think it may be the case for the for much of the rest of the decade is the impact of inflation and high interest rates on one's expected returns whether one invests in the bond market or the stock market or real estate or whatever it might be private equity that we've been through a period for the last 15 years of extraordinarily low interest rates and very low inflation with it not quite deflation but you know low, low levels of inflation so low that they're, they're almost unnoticeable and from 2020 onwards 2021 you know after the pandemic that it seems that we're in a different kind of regime now um for a number of reasons some of which are you know structural you know we seem to be potentially heading into an era of deglobalization um where the role of individual countries becomes more important and that we, we're moving away from a, a unipolar uh, world led by you know, sort of the american model of uh, of capitalism um and also we're in undergoing this energy transition which is a multi-decade uh, process but I think one of the things that people find very difficult to conceptualize when they're thinking about how much money they need to save or the level of saving they need relative to the, how much money they spend each month on groceries, you know, going out more generally or their mortgage or whatever it might be, is that the problem of compounding, you know, whether it's inflation, reducing the value of money over time, or whether it's the, the effects of compound growth from interest over time, increasing your the value of your savings, because it's a a non-linear process you know it's a geometric process that is quite difficult to picture in your mind and therefore it's often the case that when you have periods of higher inflation and higher interest rates you often see particularly if that's different from what we've recently experienced it takes people a while to get their head around the fact that there's been regime change you know it's very easy to stick with our recent past and assume that that which has done well in the past is going to do well in the future but there's certain examples from history not that history is ever you know a guide to the future but there's certain you know recent episodes in the, in the 20th century of periods of inflation where the things which people owned on the way into a period of inflation didn't do very well and those which did well were the ones that they that people only picked up on at the very end of the, the period of inflation I'd, I'd tend to caution people to think about how their view of the future is going to be affected in terms of their investments by the effect of inflation and high interest rates for what might be a you know a five or ten year period and something quite different from what's happened in the uh, in the in the recent past at least should people make resolutions though around money or just focus on going to the gym and dieting and the other regular resolutions is it something that people should think about at a particular time of the year um i mean i without without wanting to encourage people to be obsessed by money by thinking about it all the time i think it's uh you know it's certainly the case that it never hurts to think about what one is doing with one's money um certainly as i said not to be obsessed by it um but i don't think i think money's one of those very funny things particularly in families you know one can talk to one's partner about it and it's the sort of thing that almost invariably causes arguments and people often get quite funny around money you often notice when I don't know, you, you, you hear stories about when an elderly relative passes away and there's an inheritance that people get very grabby around money. Even people who aren't normally very avaricious, there always seems to be this sort of slightly strange uh, uh, phenomenon of people getting, you know, slightly worked up about money in a way which 
they wouldn't about other resolutions for example you know talk about you know everybody sort of makes the resolution to to drink less eat more healthily and do a bit more exercise in the new year and, you know by none of january, us ever do of course Charles. Well, as i was to say by the end of january most people are sort of you know back in their old ways um likewise people don't like talking about money because it's one of those things that always causes arguments in part because i don't think people necessarily understand it it's and I, a great irony, it's a bit like language, where it's one of these tools, which is a human creation and an extraordinary one as well, which we use all the time, every day. You know, we talk every day, we write every day, we read every day. But when you start, you know, delving into the niceties of analytic, analytic philosophy and philosophy of language, it becomes very, very complex. Um, likewise, when you start thinking about money, it's something that we use, think about, deal with and anticipate every day. But when you start to talk about and think about how it really functions and how it works, suddenly it becomes very, very unclear. And I think that's one of the reasons why people can become so confused and- Yeah, I wonder, you know, Freud made a career and a, a name for himself by arguing that we define ourselves through our dreams and particularly our sexual appetites or desires. I wonder, whether and, and I'm sure people have written on this, Marx touched on it in Das Kapital, on the idea of money as the core thing driving us, but not in a rational way, in a metaphysical, often rather uh, insane manner. It's um, I, I think I mean I think that's certainly the case, but also the idea that money itself changes, um, and what it buys changes as well. As you know, as driving exciting life up here in rural Norfolk I was driving my mother to the supermarket this morning we were talking about how the cars that people own in the last 10 years have suddenly got so much bigger and faster and I was trying to explain to her how we've shifted from a world where you got cars up in Norfolk already uh... just about just about not everybody but 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 we have the, the horse and cart is on the way out at least um a few more people own cars um but it's um I was trying to explain how you know, maybe in the 70s or 80s, if unless you were a traveling salesman where you got a car as part of your job, if somebody parked a new car in the road or in their garage, uh, that people would say, their neighbor would say, oh, someone's doing well, right? Because obviously they had to pay for it in cash. Yeah. And I was explaining to my mother how the advent of also financing in its various forms and, you know, the, the amount of money that's lent, the interest rates at which it's lent, it all got lower interest rates, more money lent, has basically meant that people now have these you know, the most extraordinarily advanced cars relative to what they used to have, um, how cars no longer depreciate. You know, they used to say that if you bought a new car, it lost a quarter of its value when you drove it off the forecourt because that's just what happened between new cars and secondhand cars. Because you can now borrow money for secondhand cars on terms as generous, if not more generous than new cars, that secondhand cars amazingly keep their value. But what it means is when you're driving around and you see somebody in a, I don't know. Aston new, Martin. An Aston Martin or a brand new Range Rover, which, you know, those cars cost 150 or 200 grand. and Or a Bentley, half a mil. Or half a million. But if you work out how much that costs pre-tax, how much you need to earn to buy that car, it's a serious amount of wedge where even hedge fund managers and private equity guys wouldn't be using four or 500,000 pre-tax salary to buy a car. And they're not because they're paying a couple of grand a month for a lease. And... Interesting what that does, not only to the goods that you own, but also to the nature of money itself as a as a measure of value and worth, is that if everybody has a nice car because there's a lot of car loans out there, you can't judge people's wealth or status by their cars because they don't really right. own them. No, don't judge. If, if your neighbor has a Bentley or a Range Rover or even a Tesla in the drive, 
don't be deceived um and and i guess uh, charles the reverse is true if if uh, if they have a, a beaten up old car in the drive they still may be a, a millionaire or multi-billionaire finally charles croson uh three days before the new year 2023 has been if i think most people would agree the year of ai 2024 is going to be the year of even more ai how can ai change alter our relationship to money and indeed to time can it rationalize it can it be a friend to analysts rational analysts like yourself or is it more of the same more madness more mania more delusion and illusion um i mean i tend to think of ai i mean from my point of view as somebody who's you know been writing and researching for the last couple of years is the most extraordinary research tool um the amount of collating organizing translating uh, sifting that it can do is staggering and i think that can only be a good thing from the point of view of creative thinking and original thought whether it's on wall street or whether it's in science or the humanities more generally um i think in terms of particularly the way we look at language in economics and one of the you know the focuses in my book is very much on the idea how numbers can tell us so much but it's really how we talk and think about uh value and money and objects and the past and the present which is the real key to understanding where not only what's happening now but what's going to happen in the future in terms of our own economic outlook or whatever it might be and i think the ability of ai to start more creatively dealing with the way we talk and think about finance and our economic decisions through language rather than through numbers simply because it has the capability to work out sense and meaning in a way far better than the current algorithms you use can only make you know the future of financial analysis something which is going to be fun uh, i'm guessing there's going to be and i'm sure there already are many many startups doing this putting financial analysis in in language that makes more sense to people which I guess is good for them although for guys like you in the traditional financial advisory analysis business it's going to put you all out of business Are, well is there a future for charles cross and the financial analyst well i don't know i mean i've been i've been having what i like to call a career break for a couple of years but i think the the, the industry i started in 20 years ago has already changed um about a decade ago algorithms took over and passive investing you know the use of exchange traded funds and the like has has become you know, the, the, the go-to choice for a lot of investors, uh, both institutional and retail. It will reinvent itself. And if you want to have a career, you have to reinvent yourself in that. But it's, um, I think, you know, the change has already started, but it's only accelerating now, I think.